Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, huge guest, huge guest from the band Baxter, from the band Rise Against, Tim McElrath is here. And if you are not familiar with Tim, uh, I'm... I, I don't know what, how I can help you on this one. You should you probably know Rise Against. And, and this is Rise Against Week here on Turned Out of Punk. And I will get to more information on that and Tim. But trust me, this is awesome. This is an awesome episode. But more on that in one second. First, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutofpunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. And he will get the message to me. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at left for Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by telling all your friends about it, letting them all know that you enjoy this podcast here that we do uh, twice a week, sometimes three, maybe this week, hopefully cross my fingers, three episodes, definitely two, but cross my fingers, three episodes uh, and you can let your friends know that we do this thing and uh, spread the word that way. You can also uh, subscribe it to it and rate it on your platform of choice. And thank you to everyone that does do that. And speaking of thanks, huge thank you to everyone that goes over to patreoncom slash turned out a punk and supports the show that way. It is very, very much appreciated. Thank you to everyone that does do that. And speaking of thanks, this thing would not be possible with the kind support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do. Just don't do it out of your own pocket and help me cover some of the weird costs that come up doing a podcast, which, you know, I, I'm shocked. There's all these weird costs that keep coming up. And <laughs> sounds like I'm joking, but I'm not. Uh, but so thank you. Thank you very much to the fine folks at Vans. I say fine folks, but the, the people over there, Vans, for uh, doing what they do. I miss them. I miss uh, all my buddies, uh, you know, Chuck and the crew at House of Vans. And hopefully when this thing's over and we can travel again, I'll be back at a House of Vans and hanging out and, and in Chicago. In Chicago, which is a perfect segue to talk about today's guest. But I still mean need to talk to you the about my band. I play in a band called Fucked Up. We got uh, reissues coming out of our David Comes to Life record and a bunch of songs that came out on singles around that time on Matador Records. Head over to matador.com, matadorrecords.com, and check out uh, those things. And also, we're going to be coming on tour. Holy jeez, it feels weird to say that. Uh, we're going to be heading out on tour in the new year, and uh, I can't wait to see some people. I cannot wait to see everyone, some people, everyone. I cannot wait to see everyone, anyone. At this point, I cannot wait to see anyone. Oh, anyway, that is uh, over there at fuckedup.cc for more information on those shows. Okay, now it's time to talk about Chicago because today on the show, we are talking about Tim McElrath. And if uh, Tim is someone who I've wanted to have on the show for a long, long time. Zach Blair, of course, a good friend of the show another member of rise against. And, uh, he has said for a long time, you gotta have Tim on the show. And it just has never come together until now. And finally it has an, Oh my gosh, was it worth the wait? Uh, this goes all over the place. Tim is the perfect guest for this show because he unites 
so many sort of disparate scenes that are happening at the same point in Chicago. And anyone that listens to this podcast or has listened to this podcast, I should say, for uh, an extended period of time knows that 90 Chicago DIY hardcore is the best ever. Like, it's so fascinating, all the stuff that comes out of this from, you know, obviously Follow Boy, Rise Against, we talk about Alkaline Trio, Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, One-fifth connects back to this punk thing uh but it, you know it's all kind of coming out then those crudos charles bronson anyway we we get into all this stuff with tim um i don't think i've got too many notes other than to tell you that uh rise against has a brand new album called nowhere generation you can pick it up in stores and uh yeah check it out it's a fantastic record this this is the, one of those bands you know they they just keep you know consistently putting out awesome records and they're just these people, real, real people that, well, you hear it, you know, this conversation with Tim, he's awesome. All right. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Tim McElrath on Turned Out a Punk. Tim, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey. Damien, it is my pleasure. I have been a sporadic listener of your show, so I'm happy to uh, to be on it. Well, that is a joy to hear. And I, I spared you from showing you this off air or off air before we started recording. Mm-hmm. But I have like a, a crazy, like it looks like that Charlie from Always Sunny in Philadelphia meme style note sheet in front of me, just listing oh, no. bands and all this sort of stuff of questions <laughs> I want to ask you. <laughs> Like the so, murder board from like a, like a CSI episode, like trying to track down who did it. Pretty the much. Crime. It's the murder board yeah. of my mind emptied out on the page in front of me <laughs> of Chicago bands. Because I, you know, I felt this, I interviewed Neil, um, you know, who, who of course played with you in Baxter um, a, yeah. a couple a couple years ago. And oh, I felt good. like your generation has such a great perspective on one of my favorite music scenes ever, which is this 90s Chicago hardcore boom where it kind of becomes like the capital of hardcore in the 90s yeah i mean we didn't know it at the time but i like i think like the older i got the more perspective i got and talking to people like you kind of gave me perspective about like how cool it was and how special it was i mean it always felt special to me but i didn't know how to compare it to like anybody else's world well i'm i'm gonna get to that believe me okay we gotta start this off the way they all start off which is okay tim how did you get into punk do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre so I know that you asked this question because I listened to your podcast and that actually it made me it made me think about it because I honestly I've been answering this question for about 20 years, but I've never really thought too deeply about it. Like, um, I feel like my memory, probably like a lot of people's memory, like doesn't always line up with like record release dates, you know, mm-hmm. like when I look back and see, oh, this album came out this year. So I actually hit up my best friend because I got into punk with him and it was his older sister that I would credit with corrupting us um, and uh, showing us punk rock. And we, I, I decided with my buddy yesterday that it was probably like, we were probably sixth or seventh grade, which was like 1989, 90, around there. Mm-hmm. And um, his sister was in high school and she was at a private school. And anybody who knows anything about private schools, there's a, 
a disproportionate number of misfits in private schools usually. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> and then so she was discovering all this stuff that wasn't on the radio, you know, just like real subculture kind of stuff. Cause at that point, all we really knew was on the radio. Um, or like big metal bands like Metallica and Slayer and that kind of thing. And so she started discovering, you know, like college rock alternative, that kind of thing. And she wasn't into the heavier stuff and that stuff she would kind of pass along to us. And some of the first bands that she passed along to us were uh, like Peg Boy, who at that point were coming out of the ashes of Naked Ray Gun, mm-hmm. you know, and starting to play in Chicago and Los Crudos, um, oh, which wow. was like, yeah, like I think that I actually my buddy, I asked my buddy, like, why were we listening to Los Crudos in like seventh grade? And he was like, I think that there was a large like Latino population at his sister's school that were kind of getting into this stuff. And Crudos were from the Pilsen uh, neighborhood. And they were starting to make a mark. And so we got into that really early too. And so we had this cool like line into like local Chicago punk right away at the, while we were starting to discover um, some of the, the bigger punk bands around. But that's kind of, that's where I'll probably put like its genus, like its origin was like, I feel like everyone's got like the, my friend's older brother, my friend's older sister or whatever. And that's my yeah. story is like my friend's, older sister kind of showed us all this really cool music. And that was just the, you know, like everybody's punk story. It was the tip of the iceberg. Now we wanted to know so much more, like who the hell are these bands? Why haven't we heard about them? Where do they play? Who listens to them? Are there other bands like them out there? And thus began the last like, you know, 30 years of my life. It's so fascinating too, because you're also getting sort of the two big streams of, of Chicago punk, you know, you're getting that kind of like, sort of college radio indie rock kind of like, or like post-punk post-hardcore kind of thing. And then you're also getting that DIY thing with Crudos. Like it's, Mm. it's funny how you're getting like the complete range in those two bands. Yeah, totally. And I think that that was good because it, it, cause Chicago had a very, I don't know, like maybe like a divided scene, you know, there was like different genres and different cliques. That was, I think those walls were kind of, pretty congealed um by a time i was getting into the chicago scene but i didn't feel a part of those i didn't feel like those walls were meant for me i felt like they were meant for like a previous generation and so it allowed me to bounce back and forth between all kinds of shows you know what i mean i felt just as comfortable at a cap and jazz show that i did at like an extinction show which was our local hardcore band that i did at a peg boy show or a blue meanies show or a bull evil show you know, like I just, I felt, I, I felt comfortable at all those places. I felt like I wanted to be there and I didn't feel like anything was preventing me from being there. And I was there with Neil Hennessy, who you already have talked to, mm-hmm. you know, we were discovering this stuff together and we were just like sponges, right? Like we were just, just, I don't know. Everything I saw was so exciting. You know, I loved all those bands, even though they were all so different, like, like the blue minis were so different than Los Crudos, but in my head, it was all kind of the same thing you know like i loved crudos as much as i loved like the smoking popes you know who are very very different bands but to me it was all just part of this really cool subculture that was creating something that felt special and it felt like it was like a i don't know this kind of tribe that i I was just sort of soaking up everything yeah it's funny you mentioned that too because you know, to me, it, you know, and other people that have come on the show have talked about it. It feels like, you know, you look at that Uk Chicago compilation. Oh, yeah, one, totally. And, yep. 
And it's like, what a range of bands that are being mm. represented there. Like you've got, you know, trench mouth on there and you've got like, yeah. you've got like a, you know, a little bit of everything, but at the same time, oh, yeah, was, go on. Sorry. I was gonna say it was Crudos. It was Popes. It was Prophets of Rage, the original Prophets of Rage. Which yes. Is, uh, <laughs> Dan, Dan Sinker's short-lived band who he was the editor of um, Punk Planet. Right. And so yeah. he would, yeah. he would go on to do punk planet which was a super important zine you know at the time because you know obviously we didn't have the internet so that's how you found out about music was played like things like punk planet or mrr or heart attack um and what else was on there cap and jazz was on there i mean if you had a song in octung's we that's like just as big as any radio single to me you know like i know all the songs by heart like the bullables <laughs> and the vindictives and you know all that so i think gauge was on there like, gauge is on uh, yep Oh, that was uh, such, yeah, I beat that I get, I get one and two, Well, I get one and two confused. I'm, I'm always trying oh. to remember which is on which, but like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Like it is it, like, it is such like the, to me, the perfect scene because you've got like all that different kind of sounds happening at once. But then it seems like as it goes on, like a few short years, you know, and this, and this has been brought up, Daryl brought it up from the bow weevils there. It does start kind of factioning off into like these little, separate divided clicks totally yeah you know wait i want to make one quick point about the octung zwe um, oh, yeah. <laughs> comp because i think this is funny the cap and jazz song that is on there um i definitely lifted a guitar <laughs> line in that intro and it's in our song ready to fall which is like one of our bigger songs <laughs> yeah. and like it's totally straight from that specific song from that specific comp that you know nobody would ever notice it but like it's in the verse and it's fully because i remember learning how to play that captain jazz song and then just loving that little riff and it eventually made its way into a rise against song <laughs> so that is probably, awesome yeah yeah i owe captain jazz somewhere somewhere <laughs> along the lines um you, oh no sorry you, you go through that like as you're saying like you know you bring up captain jazz who of course kind of invent you know, that the kind of Midwest emo stuff in a lot mm. of ways, or like certainly, you know, you have Crudos, you got the smoking popes, you know, as you brought up prophets of rage, eight bar yeah. becomes someone else too. V verse. Oh I think. yeah. Uh, v reverse. V reverse. Yeah. That's it. That was Doug Ward and eight bark. Eight bark. What a crazy fucking band. Eight bark. You know what I mean? Yeah. Nothing, nothing sounds like eight bark. Nothing sounded like eight bark ever. You know, so I was a big fan of eight bark. And then uh, I was a big fan of V reverse. And you know, there's a band like you are an encyclopedic uh, like source of punk rock knowledge and and obviously even Chicago. But I don't know if you've heard of the band called uh, Sidekick Cato. Are you familiar with that at all? No, but actually I listened to some interview and you brought them up and it was I was like, right. holy shit, who is this band? So this was like it wasn't that they were like 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 I would use the word obscure, but they were just as like important and big as a lot of these bands. But they were not they were very poorly documented. You know what I mean? Like they just didn't have like the label, the records. They never really recorded like the the height of their career. They never made merch. You know what I mean? Like they were just yeah. sort of like this neighborhood band. But it was, I will say, like the most important band in my adolescence. It was like they were just this really powerful, cool band. I don't even know how to describe their sound exactly, but I know that I've been trying to like emulate it the rest of my life. You know, it was like um, it was it was almost like a like a pre emo kind of emo world, like what like it was screamy but melodic, okay. and it was the kind of just shows that would just like 
people would just go off. And I was one of those people. Like I was in those crowds. I followed them around. Like you would follow the Grateful Dead around, you know, if they were playing it <laughs> anywhere, any basement, any house party. Um, I got lucky because I was still young. I was like 15. So I didn't drive, but I became really good friends with the lead singer's little sister. And so obviously she knew all the parties that they were playing. She knew all of like the bowling alleys or the VFW halls that they were playing. Um, and so we would just drive around the suburbs of Chicago and follow this band around. And God, they were, I can't tell you like, like I can, I can, this is how crazy it is. Like I can play songs on a guitar that I only saw them play live like 30 years ago. That's wild. And to this day, I could pick up a guitar and actually play the riffs. And this, this, this band was super important, but they, they fall through the cracks of the Chicago story. They really do. But in some ways that kind of even makes it more like special to me. You know, it's like they really were just this sort of mythical, um, mythical band. So do they have anything recorded? Like I've never heard of this band, but it sounds, you know, it sounds like something I dig. Yeah, they were, um, God, they were on dyslexic records, I believe. And they put out, they put out some stuff and I'm sure you could find some stuff on Spotify as well. So yes, there is some stuff recorded. There was never, I don't, in my opinion, as like a super fan of Psycho Kato, I don't think they ever really captured their sound in a recording. Mm-hmm. And I guess like they were so, they were friends with all the bands that were playing at the time, you know, whether it was like Slapstick or, um, you know, Bullyables, all those bands. But they were very much like, even like misfits in the misfit crowd, you know, like they were kind of their own, their own thing. They weren't very like scene y. You know, mm-hmm. they were just kind of existed in their own orbit. And I feel like the, uh, like um, their fans, like me, like we existed with them, with them in that orbit. They weren't part of like um, any bigger thing, which I think like can hurt fans sometimes, you know, like being part okay. of like, like that network is super important. Sometimes it's how you go on tour with each other. It's how you play shows together and get breaks and that kind of thing. Sometimes when you are just like so isolated it, it hurts your, um, you know, your, your ability to, to keep it up over a long-term basis. Yeah. Especially in a place like Chicago, where you have so much stuff coming out. Like I imagine like, if you're not, I don't know, like, well, especially for someone outside of the city, like if you're not present for these live shows, you're not going to pick up on how important this band is. Absolutely. Yeah. And they were one of those that kind of fell through the cracks, but if you find anybody that like saw them back in the day, the, the shows were just, you know, I don't know, legendary. It's funny. Cause it brings up a thing. Like when we first started going on tour, Chicago was like the first place we started playing. And we had this thing that we would talk about called Chicago pricing. So if you went to Chicago and you found a record by a band from there, it would be more expensive than it would be anywhere else. Like all the other records <laughs> would be moderately priced, but, and it was the only right. place that it was really like that. And like, normally when you go to a place where the records are from, you know, they're all like super cheap, but there is like such a, such a pride, like, you know, naked Ray gun records were always at a premium when I was at reckless versus when I was like somewhere else trying to buy them. That's interesting. I never, I never noticed that, but I guess I could totally see that being true. Yeah. It is such a, I don't know. It's such a music town. Like, and it's not, I guess, historically, well, I guess Chicago blues, obviously, but like, Mm. you know, like I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just oblivious to it, but it doesn't seem like it was a big rock and roll town. You yeah, know, a big punk town, but then the DIY hardcore stuff exploded. Yeah, like we we did, we don't have a ton of like huge 
like marquee name success stories uh, that came out of Chicago, like the way like maybe a town on one of the coasts would, you know, West Coast, East Coast or Seattle, that kind of thing. Like, I mean, obviously there are bands that came from Chicago and huge ones, like whether it's like the Pumpkins or maybe Disturbed or whatever, or in like in our world, like Alkaline Trio and Fall Out Boy. But like for the most part, it was a lot of bands. <laughs> <laughs> we're in there we're in there somewhere I hope. yeah somewhere I would... <laughs> yeah <laughs> but like for the most part it was just like i think what our strengths was all of our you know our little bands our small bands like like chicago they call it like a city of neighborhoods because there's so many little neighborhoods that make up what, what makes chicago great and that's kind of what made chicago great was all of these little bands and then what made them special in a lot of ways you know is that they never did become that big i mean look at like pegboy like one of the most underrated punk rock bands on the planet you know still this band that to me are, were like gods and then when i left chicago it was hard to find people that were completely aware of them it's interesting like you know you bring up all the bands you've kind of brought up and you, i'd even lump smashing pumpkins in this because of james eha and his connection to like i think his band was the feds like the other feds from chicago oh Panic. yeah i didn't realize there was another feds I, I knew like probably the later feds which i didn't know the um the James Eha feds. Yeah, I guess he had like some punk band. Dan Panic uh, brought him up when he was on the show as seeing him mm. as one of the first punk bands he saw. But like, oh wow. So, like, all these bands that kind of explode from there are all products of the punk scene, like Fall Out Boy, yourselves. Like, it, it, it's really like this is where, you know, Chicago gets its huge bands from. Yeah, we were all playing shows together, you know, like Alkaline Trio. You know, uh, Skiba was, I think, playing drums and jerk water back, back in the day. Yeah. You know, Danny was in Tuesday before Trio. And then Tuesday was a slapstick split off because when slapstick, which was like our big ska band in Chicago. Yeah. Um, and, and slapstick was like a ska band in the way like that Operation Ivy was a ska band. You know what I mean? Like they were one of those like cream of the crop ska bands, like really just like, I feel like people can use ska as a dismissive term, you know, mm -hmm. but like slapstick were the real deal. And when slapstick broke up, they formed uh, the Broadways in Tuesday. And then there was that whole chain of the family that eventually turned into like Alcorn Trio, which was uh, those three guys. And then, and, and even when though that I, I played in a band called the honor system with half of the Broadways guys when they broke up and then, and was playing bass and singing for them around that, around that same time sorry i'm going off on a tangent of like family tree chicago but but you're so right everybody came butter of this show <laughs> okay well good then because everybody came from like a pretty like small chicago scene you know and even the fall boy guys like we were all going to hardcore shows together i grew up going to see you know earth crisis and integrity and snapcase and turmoil and disembodied and bloodlet and all those bands we were all going to see together um and Pete and I played in a band together called Arma Angelus. And then uh, when that band broke up, that's kind of when Rise Again started. And then when Pete went on to do a, went on to do Fall Out Boy. Well, believe me, we're going to get here. This, uh, this is all, okay, okay. This is all, this is all on the murder board. No, don't blame me. Don't worry. This is all on the murder board. We're going to get there. But mm -hmm. where did you kind of go next from once you heard, you know, these kind of two disparate kind of bands? Like, what was your next sort of steps on the punk journey? <laughs> So I had like two really good friends in like junior high and we were just got like, we went way down the rabbit hole trying to discover everything we could discover, ordering catalogs from like SST records or buying stuff through like the sessions catalogs or 
like it was all mail order back then, you know, like sending cash away to like underdog records in Chicago. And, and, um, we weren't, we were still like in like seventh or eighth grade. So we weren't quite traveling into the city yet, but that would come and we would start going to reckless and, and finding out more about Chicago. And then I think like, besides my friend's older sister, uh, sort of turning us on to a lot of stuff. I went away to a, like a, a boy scout camp where I worked as like a, not quite a counselor, but like a counselor in training, you know, I was too young CIT. to be a counselor. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I was a CIT. You know, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I went to a, a camp where I was a CIT up in Wisconsin. It was called Camp Napawan. It was in Wild Rose, Wisconsin. And I'd already like was listening to a little bit of Black Flag and listening to Peg Boy and this one older counselor. And I remember his name was Jim Chambers. He found out that I was listening to Black Flag and he was like, took me under his wing. He was like, wait, you need to know more then. And like he, him and a few other counselors were way into like punk and he made me a mixtape. So I had like the, you know, the, the mythical mixtape that we all get, right. That turns us, turns into the gateway drug to punk rock. And mine was like, you know, social D and naked Ray gun and minor threat. And I think the subhumans were on there maybe. And then Fugazi was on there and screeching weasel was on there. And so this mixtape, which I remember his name because I wrote his name on the tape. I remember I had it for years. Um, not only did I spend a lot of time listening to it, but I also, it turned into almost like an archeological dig. Cause I had to figure out who all these bands were, you know, cause I only had like a few songs from each of them. So I didn't even know what albums they were on. And I played that tape to death, you know, and I, and I, I desperately wanted to know more about these bands. We didn't have the internet. So it was all just kind of just asking a lot of questions or just finding out about the bands from other people and sort of networking and that kind of thing. And I just went down that, that huge rabbit hole. And that was all, you know, very, very early nineties. And what kind of stuff were you into before, you know, this, you're super young getting into this obviously, but like, what were you into before, you know, hearing these bands? I guess like, oh man. So I guess just metal, you know, like I think that in, especially in like the mid eighties, like, you know, Guns N' Roses was massive. You couldn't avoid them. Um, hair metal was massive. And I think I started like, and I had two older sisters who were way into hair metal. Um, but they're also into like Billy Joel and that kind of thing. You know, they were just kind of into like just mainstream stuff. Yeah. But every once in a while, I'd hear something a little bit on the more aggressive side of their hair metal world, you know? And I would be like, oh, it's kind of cool. And I remember listening to like, that was like Guns N' Roses or Skid Row that type of stuff. And then that kind of led me into like Metallica and Iron Maiden and Slayer. And then I remember my friends and I probably like early teen years, we were all like way into like the metal, you know? And, and that's, I guess that was what I was listening to um, before I discovered all the punk stuff. Was, was there like any awareness of that Chicago metal stuff that was happening? Like bands like master or I guess that stuff's like super underground. Yeah. You know, it's funny because this is kind of funny, but music was so hard to kind of get a hold of and find out about, you know, it's hard to even imagine a world before the internet, but it was, but there was a local radio show in Chicago called VVX. I remember. And it it came on maybe like Sunday nights and me and my two best friends, we would put a blank tape in our boom boxes and we'd record the show. (laughs) Um, Because this was our way of hearing like about new bands. They would talk about the bands. Um, they'd play the bands and then we had a copy of the music, which was kind of crazy and bootleg and huge to have a copy of like actual music we could play back. And then we would, you know, start to like figure out 
who those bands were. And then if we had enough money, we then go to a record store and try to like buy that stuff. So yeah, we were learning. I don't remember the band master, like that might've been before my time. Um, but we were uh, learning about like the greater Chicago area and had like a lot of metal fans because of this radio station, which I don't even remember what it was on, but I remember it was called VVX. Cause we used to like write VVX on all our blank tapes. It's, it's amazing how like the idea of taping a radio show, it's almost like a proto podcast. <clears throat> <Sorry. laughs> yes. You know, yeah. like it's in the same way that you're like, yeah, like you, cause you would take this thing and, and yeah, I would do the same thing with college radio shows. You tape them on a, on a, like a 60 or a 90 minute tape, you know, mm-hmm. and, and just try not to lose too much when you flipped it. But then you could have like, like you're saying, like it would be cause information was so it, it was, it was a commodity, right? Like you just couldn't get this stuff. You had to, you had to get this stuff. Well, yeah. And especially in an underground world where, you know, mainstream magazines would show you pictures of what, you know, whoever the huge band of the day was, um, you could find that and they'd be on TV maybe. Um, but like underground music was not represented, you know, nearly as well. You know, that's what made zines yeah. so huge. You know, I didn't, I didn't know like what Jawbreaker looked like you know, until I saw a picture of them in MRR, you know, like I didn't, I had no, I thought they were a four piece, you know, like I had no (laughs) clue, you know? And so like those zines became really huge. Uh, Radio stations became huge because it was, yeah. Information was this really scarce commodity, you know? And, And then especially for like me, who was like a young kid in the suburbs, who wasn't part of like any broader network yet, you know, as, as you got older and you found your tribe, then I felt like, you know, everybody kind of like filled in the blanks a little bit and you started to like know more about this stuff. And that also allowed for a lot of lore, you know what I mean? A lot of mythology too. You got a lot of stories around punk rock because you were just passing the stuff on like word of mouth in some ways. Oh, absolutely. Like that was, I think that was part of the thrill, right? Like you'd hear, mm-hmm. like, you, you know, you brought up integrity, the stories you'd hear about integrity and especially in Canada, <laughs> they, they could never come here. Um, so it was just like <laughs> legend after legend. And then these sort of like grainy black and white photocopied photos and zines. And totally. Just, you know, you've become so much larger than life. Absolutely. I remember Brandon, our drummer, Brandon Barnes, he moved to Chicago from Denver to play drums and rise against after playing in the band, uh, pinhead circus incredible and band. incredible band. Yeah. And Brandon's an incredible drummer and we're so lucky to have him. And it's crazy how he even found his way to us that's a different story but i remember he came to chicago he didn't really know anybody and at that point i was really into like the hardcore scene um and integrity was playing a show at a night at columbus hall um in my town and i remember just taking brandon out like i want to i want to show you like my friends and this hardcore scene which in retrospect was so dumb like brandon doesn't give a shit about the hardcore scene <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> like i know brandon well now so like i think he kind of saw that and he was like all right cool but i i definitely if he didn't care about the hardcore scene before he definitely after i brought him to an integrity show he definitely <laughs> had good reason to because i remember it was at this you know this dark smelly nights at columbus hall uh outside of uh chicago and integrity go on stage and like you said like integrity always had like controversy around them yeah. you know there was always they were always pissing somebody off it was always some story i don't remember what it was this time yeah. and so I kind of told Brandon, I'm like, I think something might go down. I don't really know. Anyway, so Integrity plays the entire show with no issue. And they had all the lights off in the Knights of Columbus Hall with like a strobe light going. And so it was dark except for the strobe light, you know, so it was like per- kind of perfect for Integrity. It was like spooky yeah. and weird. And you didn't really see them on stage. You just saw like shadows on stage. Like it was really cool. 
And the show went off like without a hitch. Nobody got violence. Nobody did anything. And at the end of the show, they finished their set and somebody turned the strobe light off before they turned the main lights on. And in those like five, 10 seconds of darkness, <laughs> the lights go back on and DeWitt's got this huge black eye. <laughs> just this huge shiner like somebody like waited for that moment and just clocked him and no one even saw who it was you know and you could see brandon like immediately questioning why he moved to chicago (laughs) to hang out with me (laughs) and like he's like what the fuck am i doing here what am i joining is this like your band's gonna sound like what's happening here (laughs) it is it's so funny because like they were the band that mastered that presentation like that strobe light and it's it's in punk it's supposed to be no edifice, right? Like you're supposed to, especially hardcore, you're supposed mm-hmm. to just be who you are, get on stage, play in your normal clothes. But like, it's always the band that went that extra mile and gave themselves this like elaborate thing that become the legends. Like you look at the misfits, you look at ink and dagger, you look at, you know, integrity, mm-hmm. like these bands that had this kind of like greater vision of showmanship, um, you know, kind of, kind of crack the matrix with punk and hardcore absolutely and integrity like they're all vibe they're all feel you know they're all like twiz lyrics you know it's sort of you know it's these it's young people who i don't know if they just were hip to that idea at a young age you know just had that vision but you're right those are the bands that stay with us because punk rock tells us not to have an image right punk rock tells us that image is this like extra extra thing and it should be more stripped down but like you said like punk rock you know, is and hardcore like does have an image. And in a way we respond to that image by remembering those bands and rewarding them with that, the notoriety we give them. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes like, you know, it, it, it's almost like that's the bands that get remembered or the bands that do step out and the bands that at, at first everyone's like, Oh, fuck this band. And then years <laughs> later people are like, no, that's the band. <laughs> you know, Totally. Yeah. Yeah, like you said, I can remember Ink and Dagger playing Fireside Bowl. And again, it was like strobe lights and light shows and that kind of thing. And I'll I'll never I'll never forget it, you know, because it was what they did was like, I mean, holy shit, it was like it was like controversial what they did, you know. It was like yeah. it ruffled people the wrong like rubbed them the wrong way. They were like, well, who do they think they are? You know, they're fucking like, vampires. What the fuck is this? <laughs> people are so angry. <laughs> right? It was so like it was just life and death back then. Like what you would do, what you wrote in a zine, what you said on stage, like God, it was so, uh, it was, it was exciting. You know, it was cool. Like living, living through like PC vegan straight edge bands and then the PC backlash bands. And, you know, how can we call like, and then you you have bands that are in the same scene that were so different. You know what I mean? Like, like earth crisis is a straight edge band, but so is chokehold, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And so like those two bands could not be further from each other right <laughs> and i think they had beef too back in the day like but um or like integrity and Snapcase were in the same scene yep you know yeah. like the, yeah. the, and they might play a show together and like that was exciting like that variety was really exciting to see that all like in the same show was like everyone's different take on what music means to them you know and that was pretty awesome because then as me as like somebody in the crowd I got to just soak it all in like a sponge and just kind of see it all and, and love, you know, that like, you know, when Bloodlet came out, they were from Florida. So they had like this metal sound. That's where they were from, you know, and like Snapcase were from Buffalo and they had a sound that was very regional to that, you know, or, 
you know, you, you guys are up in Toronto. So you had like grade came yep. around and it was like, oh, this is really cool too, you know? And so it was that regional sound was real, you know, it made it like really special. I, I don't know if it's still around these days, but like, you know, in my experience, it was like a very real thing. Yeah, no, I think it, I think it's kind of faded away because that information that we've been talking about that's so commodified is now, you know, like it, obviously there is, you know, acknowledging the barrier to entry to get to this information, but it's essentially all mm -hmm. free once you can get there, you know, like right. you, you don't have it commodified in the same way. So I guess you got a free flow of it now. So yeah, like I've been talking to a lot of people and there's definitely this divide I've noticed on the show with, with people that kind of got into it post, you know, file sharing on music being much more of a thing where you have not even geographical scenes anymore, more like ideological scenes where you have people kind of connecting in, you know, vast expanses of space over vast expanses of space and, and coming together just over ideas more than mm. like you're saying, like you don't really have to be lumped together with bands that don't necessarily sound like you anymore. That's interesting. I never thought about that, but you're right. Like if we're going to eliminate like the distance between us, like the physical distance, then something else will connect us and that will be, you're right. Like our ideas will put us into maybe like the different scenes and yeah. those, and then, and then you'll find fans or an audience that will, those ideas will resonate with. That's interesting. That's like an interesting way to like watch the information super highway, you know, e like evolve the scene. Mm -hmm. No, I didn't. I definitely think that it's like, you know, when I, when I first started doing this thing, I was like, oh, well, it's, it's the death of the scene, you know, but now I'm looking <laughs> at it, I'm like, no, no, it's just changing. And it's like, it's always yeah. been something that changed. Right. Cause someone, cause whenever, whenever you walked into the scene, there was some older grumpy guy saying that the scene was already dead too. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the scene's always dying. <laughs> it's like, that's, it's always has been, it, it already happened. You missed it, you know, yeah. but, but like realistically it's being born again, like as we speak like today like this week it's like having a rebirth somewhere you know right now oh yeah no it's amazing to think about like someone probably sitting in you know uh you know this is like completely out of control negative approach show just like watching everything go down and then being like yeah you guys should have been here when the stooges played this is nothing <laughs> <laughs> oh god it's totally it's totally i remember like there was a, I was in Fort Collins where we do a lot of our records with Bill, you know, mm -hmm. um, and Bill, you know, everyone knows played in black flag and one of Bill's roadies lives there and he was working a bar one night, just taking like checking IDs or whatever. And he was a little tipsy, you know, he's a little salty and drunk and he's an old, he's an old punker and he used to tour with black flag and every person that walked in the door, it was a punk show. Every person that walked in the door, he looked at their ID, looked up and goes, you never saw black flag <laughs> and the next id you never saw black flag <laughs> and he told that to every single person that walked in and i remember like the next weekend he, there was a sign on the door it said to everybody i pissed off i'm very sorry <laughs> <laughs> well at least he you know recognized the error of his ways but uh, yeah yeah time, but it's it's just you know i think that's part of what makes punk that's like i think what makes us all try so hard in our bands is because mm -hmm. we've just been told that you're never going to be that good because the best bands have already come and gone. Totally. And you know, what's interesting too, is that I was, if I'm like a super fan of anybody, it's always been Ian McKay and everything he's done. And 
it's interesting because being a super fan, I've re- I read like I've read his interviews. I grew up reading and whatever he would say. And one of the things he always emphasized was like, like live in your own time and in your own scene, you know, don't, don't try to, you know, just live in the past or just mythologize my past or my experience. Like minor threat was my thing. I did it. Now I'll go, you go do your thing, you know? And that was like, I mean, if you think about even like the Fugazi song, um, bad, is it bad mouth? Uh, you can't be what you were. So you better start being what you are, you know? Mm-hmm. And like the, I, I feel like I got sound advice from a guy that I put on a pedestal and he was kind of like, take me off this fucking pedestal and go do your own thing. And I felt like that was a really an, an empowering thing for me to hear as a young person. I've always wondered why discord never did like a more modern hardcore band, you know, like, like, you know, mm. after the, obviously, you know, they were doing all their stuff with their bands and sort of the discord scene, but I always wonder why they never reached out to like, you know, battery would have been amazing, but oh like, my God, yeah, <laughs> or even a turnstile or, or give or something like that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I just, or wasn't always, like a, was damnation AD from around there. Yeah. They, that would have been okay. amazing. Right. Yeah. Imagine yeah. Yubikai producing a Damnation AD record. <laughs> he seemed like he didn't want like to get anywhere near like a new school straight edge hardcore scene. You know, yeah. he, he wouldn't he wouldn't touch touch it with a ten foot pole, I guess. Um, but you're right. That would have Discord would have been what a great home for a lot of that fun stuff that was happening. And not that there wasn't cool shit happening on Discord. I used to love like Kerosene 454 mm-hmm. and Blue Tip, you know, like those bands were super important to me. I'd watch them play all the time and they 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 had some good moments for sure. But you're right. Discord could have been harnessed for some 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 bigger things. Yeah, it's just it's just fascinating. Like obviously he's got his motivations for everything and he's a, you know, right. very smart guy and I'm sure he's got a great reason for it. But it's always just surprised me because you know, like it just seems like when you hear him talk it would have been something they would have done. But you know, yeah. Going back to <laughs> what's Bill, you know, Bill, obviously an immense figure in punk and hardcore, also one of the most yeah. intense personalities I've ever met. Mm. And toured yeah. with. Totally. How did, how did that connection start? Ooh, by accident, actually. Um, I'm embarrassed to say that Bill was like our second or third choice to produce our second <laughs> record <laughs> revolutions per minute. Yeah. Um, we had done our first record on fat which actually it's like it's i think by the time this comes out we'll have had its 20th anniversary um congratulations uh, this month yeah it's crazy to think about um and then when we were doing revolutions per minute which was our second record on fat we were um we were a band that not that we had like an identity crisis but we wanted to be taken seriously as a band that could compete like in the hardcore world and wasn't just another uh, band trying to emulate the fat sound because at that point the fat sound was a real thing you know the epitaph sound was kind of like a real thing and we were trying to like prove that we were more than that we weren't we weren't just not there's anything wrong with that sound but we were just we knew that we had like a different thing to offer and so we um sought out some of the more hardcore producers and we actually hit up steve evitz i remember first who had done like a sick of it all record around that time. And then also that, that turmoil record that sounds amazing. And we are like, Oh, this guy will bring out the hardcore side of our band. He wasn't available. And then we sought out Brian McTurnan. Um, and through a, 
I think just some series of miscommunications. Like we thought we had time booked and he was like, no, you didn't. <laughs> and the, like that so goes like the, the band with no manager and, you know, emails yeah. and vo- voicemails and things like barely being organized. You know, that's just the way it was. And so honestly, Bill was kind of like, oh shit, we need to record a record. <laughs> Where are we going to go? And Bill uh, was available. And we, I think we probably didn't consider him at first because I think we thought of him as like, kind of a little bit of that fat sound like the guy who kind of one of the guys who helps create it you know mm-hmm. um like i guess like the most obvious guy being like ryan green but bill was still had was doing good riddance records at that time and everything um that said like ending up at the blasting room was probably one of the most uh pivotal moments of this band and the reason that i'm probably still here talking to you because we found our soulmates um in the production world in the music world in the in the punk world and just in like you know just the friendship world we just found a studio that we jived with immediately just like we were cut from the same cloth bill appreciated us and what we were doing we appreciated him he's like the rise against whisperer he can like speak to all four of us like very effectively (laughs) he's a guy who like understands that we've that we had a foot in punk and hardcore, but we never wanted to let it be a ceiling to what we were doing. And he wanted to push it. You know, we wanted to be this little engine that could make songs that we thought were good, but could also compete with anything you might hear on the radio, you know? And so that became, Bill became like a mentor to us, like a guru of sorts, you know? And I don't, it's really, it's a really a special thing. And even the older I get, the more special it, it, I realize it is because I realize not, not every band has that relationship with a producer. You know, we became really good friends. I still talk to him like every week, you know, um, I've been on vacation with him. Our families are friends, you know, like, uh, he's just a really important character in my life. He's, um, one of the biggest reasons, like I am the songwriter that I am, you know, he gave me like the confidence to be the songwriter. I am, um, those records, those songs that you hear, like, he is in every single part of it. So, sorry, I went to, I went on off, off on a Bill rant there. No, no, because I th- I think he is he's amazing, and you brought up something there where you know the loyalty that he has to the people that he loves. I find mm-hmm. really special, like you know the way he you know the, these bands that he works with, where he's not just like a producer where it's a gig. It's because mm-hmm. the bands that he takes to they become you know part of his life. It seems. Absolutely. And he has this really intense discipline to what he does, which like, I don't know if that discipline was like a part of him before Black Flag, mm-hmm. but like the more he tells stories about Black Flag, you realize the, the the discipline that it took to be in that band, you know, like Greg made those guys work eight hours a day, you know, yeah. for that band, they did everything. Yeah. And I think that probably, you know, there's probably some trauma there, but there's also like, it instilled this really intense work ethic with a guy like Bill where he doesn't waste a fucking second of the day, you know, and he gets frustrated if a second is wasted. Like he, he, he's very efficient and like functional and like, you know, I don't know. It's almost like, uh, I, I think he talked about how like the guy, the punk bands on the East coast would call his band, like, like army punk. Cause it was like, it was like army time. It was like army, you know, like everything was like, he said, Ian would call them, call him Mr. Function, you know, it was all just this really intense discipline. And they brought that to the studio, to the blasting room. Um, and so when we go there, it's like, it's all biz. Like they, they're not going to waste your time. You know, they're going to, they're going to make the best sounding record. And then with Bill, 
he does have a special connection to our music and him and I have a special connection like with like the lyrics and everything. Like he's the guy I want to impress. Like he's like, he's the bar that I'm trying to jump over, you know, mm-hmm. every time. And I don't think that I can't think of anybody else in my life that's like that, you know? So he makes me work harder. He makes me a better musician. It makes me a better person. Like just by knowing him, he's such a deep and insightful and, and present uh, person. And he's so, so talented. You know, he really, he really pushed rise against through the womb. You know, he really got us out there. I'm not sure that record and a lot of those records could have happened with anybody else. Yeah. Like he, uh, he just seems like that, like even how Zach winds up getting in the band because he worked yeah. with Hagfish and he, and he liked those dudes, you know, and then he mm-hmm. does only crime with them. And so it just feels like, yeah, like he's this guy who, who looks at these bands as something that, I don't know, he, and he doesn't feel like he's overbearing, like he's trying to put himself <laughs> in the picture too. Oh, dude, no, he's the most selfless person for sure. You know, even, even as a producer, we all value his opinion so much, but it, it, there are times where if he says something and like, he's not sure if we're on board with him, he's like, he's never like stern about it. He's like, or he's like, or I'm a, I'm a 60 year old punk guy, you know, who doesn't know what he's talking about. You know what I mean? <laughs> like he'll always like, he'll always sort of be really self-deprecating that way in that way. Cause I think he's so unaware of his own genius too. Like he, he's self-deprecating and like, he's so, he's one of those guys who's constantly surprised that he still doesn't have to work a real job, you know, <laughs> like, he just comes from that world where he's like, I can't believe I've been doing this for this long, you know? And so we, I don't know. He takes everything very, uh, very, very, very seriously. And, um, and always questioning himself, never cocky about who he is. And also, you know, it's easy to forget that this guy is a pillar of the punk community that we all exist in. <laughs> you know, we are, when we, when we talk about punk, we are standing on his shoulders, you know, like he really just was, was there for just some of the most important moments of it. And Bill is obviously a phenomenal drummer, but he's also a phenomenal songwriter, you know, music, lyrics, all of it, but also a businessman. Like he, they, they ingeniously built that studio with the advance they got from Interscope Records um, when all signed Um, and not just the advance, but also when, when Interscope dropped all, <laughs> uh, they got money for that. And instead of just like pocketing it, you know, like they, they built a studio, they bought their trucks, so they don't have to rent tour buses. They bought their own merch company, like all of these things, you know, they, they, they did. And it was such like a, I don't know that it's, it's their own version of like DC punk, their own version of discord records, their own version of like DIY. And it's still existing to this day. Like that studio is where, where we make records, but like, like, I mean, Big bands, you know, bands like Day to Remember or the Lemonheads have made records there. I mean, Puddle of Mud made a record, made a record there. You know, like this is all stuff that like comes from the punk world. You know, bands from all over the world, you know, come to make a record with with Bill because they know his attention to detail is so uh, unrivaled. Yeah, no, it, it feels like you know, like you're saying, we're standing on the shoulders of these these people, like you know, DOA as well. Like these bands had this work ethic, like that. You know, punk gets this rap, obviously, from the mainstream of being super lazy. But when hardcore comes around, you have these bands that are like getting in vans. They're starting their own labels. They're 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 really just kind of like there's this work ethic. Like that's just you don't totally. really see. You know, you see it in in certain types of places in music, obviously. But like 
it certainly was you you know something that we still kind of rely on today absolutely yeah and it's sort of inspiring you know like mm-hmm. like ian will tell you that like discord records has always existed and they've never done a contract or they don't even have a lawyer you yeah. know they've never they're still pretty much just like kids in a treehouse you know <laughs> like yeah. making it up as they go along and bills kind of the same way he's never had like huge financial backing or a partner or whatever like they've they've done things very diy the way he runs that studio with everybody in the studio is like very communal you know it's like a commune there it's like he doesn't like he's obviously like the 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 marquee name over there but he doesn't treat himself like that you know it's, he treats himself like if you do work here then you're rewarded and if you don't do work here then you aren't like he's not going to be the guy that's going to be like well it's my studio because it really is all of their studio. And I guess I should say that too, like Jason Livermore has been there forever. Andrew Berlin, uh, Chris Beeble, like they're all making really cool records there. And then there's even like a new, there's a new wave happening at last year too, where like they're making, they, they made the, the last record by that singer songwriter, Gregory Allen Isakov, which won a Grammy. Um, uh, or no, it's, it was, yeah. Did it win? I think it won. It was nominated. And then I think it won. Yeah. So like, that's the first record, the blasting room, that has won a Grammy, you know, which is pretty huge for a studio that got big, you know, producing Good Riddance and Rise Against. Yeah, no, it's amazing. It's amazing how, you know, the, the where this stuff goes, you know, and it's also you brought up an interesting thing there when with you know Discord and and then and these and even Cruz Records or Cruise Records, Cruise Records, right? Mm. Okay, I, I, I always said Cruz, like Santa Cruz. <laughs> yeah, for some reason I was saying Cruz, but I think that's like a fourteen-year-old pronunciation that I've just kind of held on to in my mind because <laughs> I've never had to say it out loud too much. But right. anyway, cruise records. You look at these things. You almost had like independent economies in the '90s, like when people were selling. You know, like you look at slapstick. They they, they were, uh, you know, talking to Brandon on the show. He was talking about how they would sell eighty, not eighty thousand, but they would sell thirty thousand copies of a CD you know, like mm-hmm. sell through back then. Like you, you had like independent economies. You could go to your like vegan restaurant that was, you know, buying their stuff from a vegan grocery store, you know, that was like per- buying from local farmers with money that was going in this local record label, like ignoring the petroleum that was going into making these records. But like right. you had like an independent economy there. Yeah. You were, you were making it happen on your own without like somebody like consulting you on how to do it. You were like, mm-hmm making it up as you went along and that made it really special you know like making your own flyers like making your like hand so screening your seven inch covers you know making your own t-shirts like all those things it was very i don't know it was empowering and it was a it was a it was like a kind of a middle finger to like society too and saying like we can do this on our own like we don't really need your help we can exist in our own ecosystem which is like the charm of punk rock right Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And it feels that's the one thing that I guess is lost now is because like at the end of the day, you know, when discord was doing it, there was, you know, a corporation wasn't going to get a piece, but now at every level, like, you know, you turn on your phone, Mm. a corporation is going to get a piece. If you log onto the streaming service, the corporation is going to get a piece just because, you know, I'm not bemoaning this because this is just reality now. Mm. Yes. The the whole delivery system has, has changed. You know, we have, we've, those CDs are no longer in our hands, you know, like to get them to people, it's gotta, it's gotta travel along this super highway, you know, and along <laughs> that way, there's a, there's a lot of different, uh, moving, moving parts. Well, and I guess it's also kind of like null and voided the whole major label argument in a way to me, because it's just like, 
we're we're all on a major label. Like our our whole <laughs> our whole society's on a major label now. Yeah, I think it's funny because I think I feel like people don't they don't care about that anymore. I don't I don't meet people who really care about yeah. anymore. But it was definitely like I mean, you remember it was like life yeah. and death back then. It was like really, it was really serious. I was thinking about this, and you may have a better answer to this than I do. I was trying to think of the bands that you know of or I know of that turned down a major label offer. Probably no effects. I yes. Think. I think, I think no effects. Um, I know Snapcase turned uh, yeah. down because I think victory kept them happy. Um, I, I think, I trying- um, uh, who's, uh, um, one time we got asked for by victory to do a split with tragedy, but tragedy turned it down. <laughs> oh, I could totally see tragedy turning it down. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was like, there's no way they're going to say yeah, but if they do a split oh, yeah. with victory, I will definitely be on that split too. <laughs> oh, oh my God. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, there, <laughs> yeah. Are, there are, there are a couple others, but like, you know, few and far between, I guess like Fugazi obviously probably was approached. I certainly by some Fugazi was, a, was approached, but if like, they'll tell you that they were never asked outright. Like, okay. I think almost like, almost like people like never had like an offer to turn down. I don't know if they, maybe they just made themselves very clear that the offer wasn't going to happen, <laughs> you know, or maybe even like, like, even if you were, even if you were a businessman, you would probably know enough about music to realize that once you signed Fugazi, they were probably no longer on something you could sell to people, <laughs> you know, like it may have been yeah. a bad investment. Like those, the, like of all bands, Fugazi was the one that you can't tamper with the formula. But yeah, but but if, but it's funny because I think about all the hand wringing over like major labels and like everything that you know we did as fans and bands did, and in the end, like it seems like ninety eight percent of bands or ninety nine percent of bands said yes. You know they they oh, yeah. Yeah. they they did it for, and then once they did it, then you had the, you know, you had either had the horror stories or the or the success stories, you know, and so yeah, that's the that's the that's the age that I grew up, and I grew up like reading. Steve Albini's op-ed about a major label being like trying to get through what like the a a a, a, a pig slop or something like that, you know. And in the end, like you're just gonna get shit on anyway. I forgot what it was. So like and like I grew up watching, you know, Jawbreaker sign and then putting Dear You out, which was like a really controversial record when it came out. You know, it like polarized their fans. You know, polarized everybody who was listening to it, and so to grow up in a time where you were watching your favorite bands kind of get destroyed by these labels and like not, and not recover um, from them. It like, it, it, it scared you away from that for sure. Like you saw it as like this evil empire. But you and I are from a hardcore world where, where it was even more orthodox than that. Like I remember when we signed to J tree, some guy mm-hmm. telling me, it felt like he got kicked <laughs> in the nuts and another guy, you know, I found out subsequently, you know, telling, you know, Yannick from tragedy, telling people that it was over for fucked up, you know, like it was, it was really, you know, like it was so mm. militant. Oh, dude. The scene that we came out of. Absolutely. Cause I came out of like, yeah, that hardcore scene in Chicago. Yeah, exactly. In the, in, in the late nineties. And so when rise against started, I mean, I was like a sellout, immediately just by playing in a band with the guys from 88 fingers louis you know what i mean like and then when we signed to fat records i mean holy shit i might as well have done like a commercial for target or something you know what i mean like it was like my friends gave me so much shit i'd like i'd show up to like you know the the strife show right 
<laughs> and walk in and be like, oh, did Fat Mike drop you off on his private jet? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like my friends had such a good time giving me shit. And then like, you know, if we if we pulled up in a van, it was like, oh, did Fat Mike buy you that van? You know, like all these yeah. things. And so it's so funny because like, like um, nobody's teeth is sharper than the Chicago hardcore scene in the late nineties. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like yeah. when people like those were, that's where I grew up. And so if anybody ever tried to give me shit after that, I was always kind of like, nah, man, you don't understand. <laughs> I've <laughs> already been late. through the ringer of ringers. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like the people closest to me who I respect their opinion, they've already like heckled the shit out of me. And so yeah. if you, if you think that, what you have to say is going to dig in to like what is now pretty bulletproof armor, then like that's adorable, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Nothing a pitchfork writer can write in a review heard as much as a whisper you over here at a DIY show. <laughs> it's so, it's so true. Yes. <laughs> um, You know, which actually brings up an amazing, um, you know, well, not amazing, but a very interesting kind of like, you know, beef that happened back then in Chicago, which is that whole race trader versus Charles Bronson thing, you know, oh, just yeah. how nasty that got. I remember it's funny because mm. race trader was, I remember they were on the cover of Maxim rock and roll. And I think that the cover said the most controversial band in hardcore or certainly was alluded yeah. to in the, in the headlines. Like it was, it was like a pretty vicious scene back then, like the divide between these bands and everyone was still going to shows together. Like that was the amazing thing. Like you'd still be beside these people at shows, but there was real vitriol. Oh yeah. I mean, I was there for the first race trader shows and, you know, money is a friend of mine and Hurley is a buddy and everybody in that band, you know, we've been going to shows for years at that point. I knew they were doing a band, you know? Um, but when they played those first shows, <laughs> holy shit. It was like, <laughs> it was like a needle scratching on a record. You know, everyone's just kind of like watching the opening band set up. Oh, there's money in those guys. We're all just the nicest fucking people you'll ever meet in the planet and then all of a sudden money just goes into the microphone and just tears into everyone there about like white privilege you know and burning the idol of the white messiah and all these things and it's funny because white privilege and uh, the idea of white privilege is something that's very common and like sort of uh you know that we talk about today in today's world but it wasn't really being talked about a lot in Definitely, in the yeah. world back in the late 90s so it was a very like shocking thing that he had decided you know, hardcore at that point, at least in my experience, we were targeting big corporations. We were talking about environmentalism. We were talking about indigenous people struggles, uh, animal rights, et cetera, et cetera. We were targeting the world outside the walls of hardcore, right? That, that was always the target was that we're here together in this tribe and the fight is outside these doors. And money made the fight inside the walls. He made the fight inside the doors. He made it so it's like, I'm going to accuse all of you of some gnarly shit right here on this microphone. And then they go into like some 90 second blast beat song. <laughs> yeah. It's so, you know, I've never thought of it that way too, but they, they really did kind of like turn that holier than thou kind of like hardcore superiority complex right. back on itself. They, yes. They turned it inward, which people weren't used to. They were used to being like the condemning um, the, everyone else. Exactly. Then they were yeah. comfortable there. We were, that's where we were all comfortable. And so like, like, and I think money's concepts and race traders concepts hold a lot of water, like to this day, you know, he was mm -hmm. pointing out a lot about the fact that we were like, a lot of us were from privilege. You know what I mean? Like that we were sitting here talking about all these struggles, but like, we were going to go back to like 
safety and security in like a, a system that's designed to protect us, you know, a largely white middle-class, you know, world. And so he was, he was hitting nerves. And that's why yeah. it was so, oh, yeah. that's why it was so controversial. And like you said, it was a uh, God, the co- I think it was the cover of MRR and the cover of heart attack, like in the same month, <laughs> you know, like he was, they were obviously, um, you know, ruffling some feathers, you know, and it was crazy because their message was always way bigger than their band, you know, like yeah. race trader never was that big of a band, but like their, their message certainly got out and it was, you know, it was, it was crazy. It was like intense, you know? And I remember sitting there like being like, wait, why is he yelling at us? You know, <laughs> like, but then in retrospect, you could see like these were and money's are like those guys are really smart people, you know, mm-hmm. just in general, like Dan Benai, Money Mustafi, you know, Hurley, like all those guys were, you know, just like intellects, you know. And so their words were particularly jarring because they knew what they were talking about. And and the world's caught up to them, like you were saying, like those mm-hmm. their their ideas sound, you know, it's amazing how hardcore's like this, where it's always kind of like you know, I felt like a lot of things that have come up later in my life, I was exposed to first through hardcore and certainly. Dude, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's what I always tell people like hardcore was my, you know, my secondary education. The first time I heard the word sweatshop was at a hardcore show. You know, the first time I was introduced to concepts around environmentalism was at a hardcore show, you know, earth crisis taught me about monkey wrenching, you know, and direct action. Um, yeah. Like Los Crudos taught me about, you know, underserved communities right there in Chicago, not far from where we were, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And they taught me that the world, there's a world where, you know, no one speaks your language. Like you're not the priority, you know, the language you speak is not, is not the rule of the day. You know, like we have our own communities and we have our own struggles and like um, hardcore shows were oftentimes benefits for indigenous people um, around the world. So you learned a lot about colonialism and then in Chicago, you know, where we've always kind of been like the, the, the forced confession capital of the world, <laughs> as far as like policing, you know, yeah. we always had like um, Fred Hampton and, and Mumi Abu-Jamal um, and a lot of, you know, questionable uh, police actions that we were doing shows and benefits for all the time. And so you were learning about injustice, you know, and now, you know, here we are, right? Like, in what is it 2021 <laughs> you know like this stuff is front and center you know they just did a movie about fred hampton you know and this was stuff that i learned about like at these hardcore shows and so yeah i it, it really was before sweatshop was like a household word you know i mean it was like i heard about sea shepherd through like ignite you know and zoli yeah, same, you know yeah, like <laughs> and then there were whale wars and a tv show you know and like now the whole world knows about them like it really was on the cutting edge there were a lot of really like just really smart people involved. Wait, were you at that ignite show in the basement of bulldog records? Uh, I've been an infamous video of that, that used to go around where uh, there's, there's like a confrontation between someone who's made a zine denouncing Ignite. Yeah. That was at fireside actually. Oh, what was it? So uh, Chicago's like our local, like homegrown hardcore band was called extinction. Yep. And, um, Pete Wentz played in it for like a, a brief second too, right? 
Yes, but I but also remember also remember that Pete once played in like every single Chicago hardcore band. <laughs> like yeah, well, Pete made your band cooler just by being in it. You know what I mean? Like he just show up with the, like his like rad style. He would get crowds going. Like the fact that he didn't really know how to play bass was just secondary. You know, he joined all those bands at some point because everyone loved Pete. He was a good time, and he made your show better. Well, it's um, like the idea of hipsters coming out of punk and hardcore, and it's like those dudes were like the first wave of it. like guys that dressed super well that knew mm-hmm. all the cool bands that weren't like awkward hardcore dudes that were like just like totally these dudes that kind of like had it figured out and that's that's really like the birth like those were those those were the dudes that would wind up doing vice those were the d- people that would wind up doing you know uh interpol i guess and like all that kind of world as well like it, those people figured yeah. it out yes he definitely he had his finger on the pulse and like if he was in a room he could read it and he could get a crowd going for whatever band he was playing uh, in. And then, yeah, like, so the singer of Extinction, Jim, had a zine called Tirade. Okay. Yeah. And that was kind of like our, you know, hardcore zine. It was interviews, pictures, that kind of thing. And uh, he he wrote something disparaging about Ignite. Um, and I can't remember exactly what it was. So I hate to, like, speculate, but it was something disparaging about Zoli. I got, I've got to find this video. This was like something okay. I watched religiously as Wait, a kid. There's a video of the fight. No, this wasn't, there was no fight on the one I'm talking oh, about. The show I'm okay. talking about. It's just like a verbal. Yes. Argument. That's what I mean. Yeah. I okay, was totally, yeah. I was there for that verbal argument. So, cause I was there, I was back, I was back by Jim. He, cause Jim would bring, he also had a distro. Okay. So he would, he would bring his distro to the fireside shows and he would sell his zine. And then uh ignite had showed up and i guess they must have read the zine in the interview because yeah. that was the thing it was the no internet right so this thing had probably been out there but they were probably on tour and hadn't read it yet and then they read it they got really pissed off and they waited till they went on stage and loaded their gear and like set everything up and then before they went into the song zoli grabbed the mic and he just started yelling just yeah. yelling and the, the way the fireside bowl works like the stage could not be further from the merch. You know, it's just one big long room. <laughs> and yeah. like, so Jim's like a mile away in the other side of the room. And it's like a, you know, probably a few hundred of us in there. And you could just, and Jim sat there and listened and then grabbed his whole distro, picked it up and walked out the door. Because <laughs> 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 oh. Jim was, was like a, a, kind of the godfather of hardcore, like around that time too. He was like, you know, he did a lot of great things for the scene. He kept the shows going. You know, he was a really solid class act and he was like, I'm not sitting here and putting up with someone, you know, giving me shit here in my own town. And he just left the room. Yeah. Yeah. Another band that I want to talk to you about is Teppin Nation, right? They, they were Treppin Nation. Yeah. Treppin Nation. Sorry. Or, they were the, um, the band that was on the same label that the Baxter seven inch came out on. Oh yeah. I don't, I mean, honestly, I didn't, I mean, I don't, I don't know much about Treppin. I remember, I remember playing shows with them and being friends with them. And then Trepin Nation, the name, it comes from like, um, it was what, it was like a, when people from like hundreds of years ago decided that to cure other people, they would drill a hole in their head. I oh, think that yeah. was like, you know what I mean? Like to like yeah. either let blood out, like if, they, if you had demons or whatever, like they would drill a hole in your head and that was supposed to like cure you. I think it's what Trepin Nation means. Um, they were kind of oddballs. That's what I remember. They were like. I, like, I guess they were straight edge kids, but like, I don't remember them being like a part of like that straight edge hardcore scene. They were kind of, um, 
just on the outside of it, but always like a cool band and always super nice guys. But I wish I knew, I wish I knew more about their story to tell you, but I'm the wrong guy to ask. The singer was in the band Jesus, who I, I think is super underrated. That I oh. love that band so much. G- X Jesus X was there. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think they've got a they've got a song on that all that in a bag of dips dicks comp that okay. is uh, still something I go back to. Uh, I don't know. There's just that's the thing is there's just so many bands, you know. Like yeah, there were. I had, I had no idea that you played in a band with the dudes from Pelican till early. Oh yeah, yeah. It was like super short lived, but like. Um, before Pelican, before Pelican was Pelican, Laurent and Trevor played in a band called Yellow Road Priest, mm-hmm. um, which is actually great because, um, they were trying to name their band after, after the priests, like the, if you think of the cover of the Rage Against the Machine record of the, the priest burning himself alive. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so they wanted to name their band after what? those guys were called and they were like, and they found out they were called the yellow road priests. And then a few years into their band, someone was like, you know, it's the yellow robed priests. (laughs) 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 I always loved that, but they were like a kind of like a blast beat grindy, like cool, like political band. And then I think that towards the end of their um, tenure, they were losing members and they asked uh, Neil and Neil Hennessy and I uh, to fill in. And I remember doing a couple of rehearsals and maybe even a couple of shows. But like at that point, like I think it's like, it's like when you're trying to like plug a hole, keep a band going, but you realize it's not the same. And me and Neil weren't like our hearts weren't into like blast beat grindcore either. So <laughs> it was like, but super, super nice dudes and, and a cool band. And then, then they wanted to do Pelican. It was, you know, such a, such a rad band. Oh, an amazing band. I think that's the, that's the best thing talking to you. And I've found this over the years talking about this kind of music is because, you know, you, you were never like in one, you know, obviously you're in the scene, but you're never like mm-hmm. dogmatic about only going to this one type of show or this one type of band's kind of click. Yeah, it really, and it was crazy because I felt really alone in that way because I was like, on a Wednesday night, I was at a Reiner Maria show, mm-hmm. you know? And then on a Friday night, I was at, a strife show like finger pointing with an x on my hand yeah you know and like i loved all of it i just thought it was yeah. so cool i thought braid was cool you know i thought all those bands from like the polyvinyl scene were cool like i just wanted to like i wanted to like soak it all in you know when i left uh high school my only plan was to move into the city and see as many shows as i could you know and just go to shows and just like i i didn't have to know much about your band for me to like be watching your band i just loved seeing everybody's take on music i love i love seeing every 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 band from every region like come in and play this is what we think punk rock should sound like and they play it for you you know and mm-hmm. so i loved i loved all that and then when i did my own band baxter it was again it was like it it, it was sort of like a part of its own ecosystem that we didn't really fit into like a hardcore scene or like a straight up like you know punk scene we were kind of our own thing too so i i don't know i was just I was just a music head, probably in the same way that you're a music head, you know, which I know because you're on like your 300th podcast or 400th podcast. Like, you, you know, you're just like, you, you must have acquired so much knowledge just from all of these interviews and everything, just hearing everybody's story. Oh, it's just, that's why I, I love doing this because every time I just feel like I'm, I'm in, like you're saying, like, this is my chosen place of education, you know, like right. once I got into punk and hardcore, like this is why, this is actually where I really 
really did well in school is just from studying <laughs> here. And just, I find like every time I get to do one of these, it's just, I just learned so much, you know, and just help put these pieces together. It's like, it's so wild. You think about the fireside bowl, you know, you've got yourself, you've got people that wind up doing fallout boy. You've got people that wind up doing Pelican. You've got people, those crudos, you've got CM Punk in there. You've got like right. this whole room of people. Alkaline trio, alkaline trio, like just mm -hmm. pop culture would not be the same without this little room of people. And I don't, you know, like you don't really see that in, in a lot of other music scenes in the same way. Yeah, I guess, I guess I never thought about it that way, but it was like, it was a really special place, you know? And it's so I feel like, you know, it's like, if you have to like, if you have to grow a crop, it's gotta be in really good soil, right? Mm -hmm. Like no matter how good the crop is, no matter how good your seeds are and Chicago had that really good soil you know, where it let us all explore music, do our thing very passionately. And also like, there wasn't a lot of like delusions of grandeur, you know, like we didn't have a lot of roads to success. And so it kind of like, um, like it kind of weeded out the people that were in it to get big and rich and famous, you know, yeah. Yeah. and it, it made the art sort of come to the forefront. Um, and you have people who were really committed to the art and they did it because they couldn't not do it because it was percolating inside them and like coming out and they were doing it at great cost to themselves. You know, they were doing it. No one was making any money. If anything, you were losing money. Like you're saying, you don't really have that, that practice space at like 10 PM at night, you know, and play for three hours with your friends, even though you had to be back at school or work at like 9 AM. <laughs> And I guess you don't really have that, that drain from people becoming, be deciding they want to become famous, you know, like, it's not really that, like you're saying, it's not really that thing. The people that are doing it are doing it because they love it and they're going to stick around. Yeah. It wasn't, nobody in it was careerist, at least as far as, yeah. Yeah. um, I can remember, you know, I think, I think Pete knew that Fall Out Boy was going to be the biggest band in the world, but that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I've kept you forever, Tim, and I could punish you, believe me, for hours more. Um, would you come back and do a part two at some point? I would love to. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, but before you go, can I ask you a couple more questions? Yeah, of course. Because I've got this sheet. I gotta I'm crossing <laughs> them off though. Don't worry, we're making we're making progress. All right, good. Um, one thing uh I wanted to talk to you about was this like, you know, you brought it up a few times is like victory records, because it feels like that's like the home base of it. Oh, well, obviously it is the home base of it, but like, it feels mm -hmm. like that scene. It's such a, I don't know. It's such an interesting manifestation in hardcore that time too, because it's almost like talk about something that's not careerist. I'm not saying that these bands were necessarily careerist on that label, but that mm -hmm. label was kind of careerist in a way that other labels weren't. Yeah, it's true. And like, I can't like, um, like overstate how important like some of those early victory bands were to like my musical upbringing, you know, mm -hmm. like everything mm -hmm. from like, um, you know, by the grace of God, guilt, uh, bloodlet, um, refused snap case, earth crisis, uh, strife. I was at all those shows. You know what I mean? Like they, that was a huge, I was at that point, like I was subscribing to anything victory was putting out. You know what I mean? Cause they put it out. They like, it was, it was really cool stuff. Um, and then in the Chicago scene itself, I'm sure anybody that you talk to from there would tell you there was like this big wall between like the scene and then victory records, you know, yeah. 
there was there was like not a lot of um like the scene didn't have a lot of love for like victory you know and like the people that ran it and so it existed as like its own um separate entity and um a little fight but yeah exactly yeah but the music they were putting out you know was like like really important music and you know i loved it i loved all those records for sure oh yeah no it's like like you brought up those bands there and you can go there's just so many bands like Warzone. there's like uh, at that, at that yeah time, Warzone. It, it was the label too but like it almost was in the same way you know like that people like turn their nose up at j tree and fat records in the diy scene like victory was definitely had that kind of stink too so it was yeah like separate worlds it feels like totally yeah and the bigger it got you know the more that the more like the chicago scene had a problem with it right and that's just kind of like the nature of of scenes but like you know but it was it was cool that like these bands that we love you know called this label from our town uh home you know and um it was always exciting to see these bands come to chicago i mean even warzone warzone played their last show ever in like my hometown like at a knights of columbus hall you know yeah. And it's like, and I remember, and like, and rabies was like super cool with like everybody, all my friends and, you know, left like a mark just in, even in my own little town. Um, and so we got a lot of really cool experiences like that, probably because victory was like, like was here. And uh, bringing up rabies, a band that's on the uh, rabies tribute comp before we went on air, you mentioned that you slept on a member of cold as life's floor one time. What band did you guys play with that was playing with cold as life? <laughs> That was Rise Against. It was like yeah. early on. I mean, God, you have to ask Joe like specifically. I don't remember who it was, but I remember we played a show. I think it was those guys were like St. Louis, or like that area. Or no, oh, those were guys were uh, Detroit, Detroit. Detroit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we played a show somewhere, and then I think it was just somebody who was working in security or something, and they were just like, "You need a place to crash," and like we're like, "Yeah, sure," and that's where we ended up. It was just like on somebody's on somebody's floor. Luckily, I don't. After that, there was no there was no crazy story. You might think that you know that happened. It wasn't it wasn't all pit bulls and strippers. You know, it was like <laughs> yeah, more chill. like it was more like sleeping bags on someone's floor. You know, but yeah. uh, it was always like God. Those Detroit shows. I think was it was it Jeff who was security there at those shows. I want to say. I think some too. of those dudes did security. I think they are big dog. I think did security for a lot of the shows as well. Who was in cold as life. They they definitely, okay. I think after they had taken care of the, the problem with security guards at Blondie's, I think they became the security. Oh, okay. <laughs> they, they dealt with the problem oh, security God. and then they were like, okay. And, yeah, yeah. and, and uh, but yeah, like it, it, it's, I don't know. It's the Detroit stuff. It's, it's fascinating because it is definitely, as as you know real as stuff gets in other places like the shit there just felt on another level of real yeah like we always played like st andrews and the shelter mm -hmm. and like that was <laughs> the neighborhood around there definitely kept you on your toes uh a little bit and so it was always it was always an experience that's for sure it was like always somebody in the van or by the van you know trying to make sure that we still had our gear when we when we left there detroit had its own its own vibe that's that's for sure there's like there's like michigan then there's detroit and like those are two different things <laughs> and you and you were probably really close to detroit i imagine or i mean like closer yeah no geographically like they were you know it's funny because when jeff was on the show i i told him like growing up you were the band to us that like even more wow. than maybe the chromags like that people just talked about like those legends that you brought up earlier like mm. they were the band that you just heard 
legend after legend of because there wasn't necessarily the internet. So it was very regional and like, you know, we had grade and we had chokehold, but like they were, right. they were that band for us. Right. That's, that's pretty cool. That's pretty special. Yeah. This has been pretty special, Tim. I, oh, good. I, I have had an amazing time and I hope you've enjoyed oh, it a little bit, but <laughs> anytime you want to come back on here and get punished more about Chicago, we, we barely even scratched the surface about with rise again. So I feel, you know, You're right, a, yeah. lot, a lot more room to grow. Anytime. Yep. Yeah. Anytime. Damien. Thank you, Tim, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, we got to have Tim back for a part two. He is, he's the guy that can connect all these disparate scenes for me. He can uh, fill in all the, the blanks in my memory from this time period in Chicago, all my unanswered questions. And thank you, Tim. Thank you. Anytime you want to come back here, buddy, and, and talk about the greatest, the greatest punk scene of the nineties, the Chicago DIY punk scene of the nineties, you know, the door is always open. And speaking of talking about this scene, we are not going to stop because we are continuing the rise against nowhere generation celebration with Joe from rise against coming on the show. And I've want to have Joe on the show forever. I, my God, did I, uh, punish the shit out of him at a, a snow jam in like 1998 he was there just checking it out. It's after 88 Fingers Louie broke up. And I was like, oh my God, it's a guy from 88 Fingers Louie. And I went up to him and I was like, hey man, what are you doing? And he, and he told me about Rise Against. He's like, yeah, it's going to be, I, th I think I got to run this by him to see if there's something he said. But I think I remember him saying, this is going to be huge. And at the time I'm like, oh, cool. But look at that. It is. It is huge. He might not have said that. I might just be making that up in my memory. But uh, it'd be cool if he did because he was right. He's damn right. That thing's fucking ginormous. One of the biggest punk bands. You know, it's a wild thing about Chicago giving us, you know, most of the biggest punk bands that are happening right now kind of come out of this DIY scene. Anyway, I'll be talking about this in a few, few days. You're going to hear me talk about this again. So I will, I will quiet down for now. Uh, that's it for the show. Remember, as always, black lives matter. The lives of indigenous people matter. We need to protect trans kids. We need to help trans people protect themselves there needs to be a stop of hate and violence towards asian people and hate and violence towards people that have different beliefs different faiths um just fuck this is all fascism like all uh, just oppressing someone for 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 this is this is some nazi bullshit you know this is stuff that isn't politics this is just like human rights issues these things you know and people just want to be free and live their lives as best they can. So, um, yeah, I'm not telling you what to do with your life. I'm not, you know, telling you what to believe. I'm just pointing out the obvious that these are human rights issues. And so, uh, sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come for those organs, you don't need them. You're like, just, just go, just get them out of me where you don't say anything, but you, you know, that's what the card's there for. So this is your organ donor card. And they're like, oh. I don't need those organs. Uh, go out and do something creative for yourself. Create your own culture. Start a band. Start a fanzine. Look where it goes. Look where it goes. Tim from Rise Against. You know, like, is a band that is, you know, influenced people all over the world. Start DIY 7 Inches. You know, that's what this show's all about. You know, it's the ripple effects that, you know, you can create. So start creating them. Start creating them. 
you know, you don't have to show anyone. You don't have to try and be Rise Against. You can try and just be, you know, Jandic and make it for yourself, you know? And then eventually you want to tour because, you know, who could blame Jandic? He wants to go out and see people respond to his work, you know? Anyway, uh, you, uh, go out there and, uh, and, uh, change the world. Love each other. And, uh, I'll see you next episode on the show. It's a very tiring week. Um, if you're listening this far in, um, and you're like, oh man, he seems <laughs> he's very wiped these days on these intros and outros. I am. Cause I'm recording these things at like three o'clock in the morning by the time I've done everything else. So thank you for bearing with me on these things, you know, it'll, it'll go back to normal one day and I'll be able to work during the day again. I hope, Ah, oh, but that's it. Listen to oil and flowers with Buddha blaze and myself, and I'll see you next episode.